I'm just going to try to record, re-record um, an episode that I dedicated on what I am finding scripturally about women in the Bible. And I had recorded it with my son in the morning and I was quite groggy and trying to keep my voice down um, for my husband sleeping and all this stuff. So anyway, I'm just going to re-record it um, to try and get it a little bit clearer and my thoughts more organized. Um, so what I have been finding in the Bible um, and in scripture and just going through things and really meditating on the word and leaning into what um, my heart is hearing from the Holy Spirit is a very different picture from what was kind of given to me growing up, listening to Christian leaders in the church, um, listening to family members who were Christians that had put certain expectations on me as a woman and directed me to read scripture a certain way. Um, and I don't think I have ever heard of a male pastor that has spoken about these stories that I'm going to talk about um, in the way that I have received them recently. So I think it's really important to go through this. And I am not, you know, trained in um, any sort of theology or anything like that. So this is really just raw how I came to this and saw this, but the Lord really orchestrated it in front of me and I've tried to put it together in an order that makes the most sense. The first place that I want to go to is in 1 Timothy 2, 12 to 15. Paul is writing a letter to Timothy and in it Paul says, I quote, I do not allow a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. Instead, she is to remain quiet for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and transgressed. But she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with good sense. So he's talking about how, and the wording is really important because he says, I do not allow a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. So he's talking in himself, and it's really his own opinion that he's bringing forward. Um, and he says, instead, she is to remain quiet. And he's silencing women in this. And this is a really hard thing for a lot of people to address in a public platform, speaking to other Christians, speaking to non-believers, because there's actually something that needs to be corrected here. And in a way, I think we see some humanity in Paul that he wasn't this perfect person and he shouldn't have been. He's not God. He's not Jesus. Um, he's a follower and he led many people to Jesus, but he has flaws. He has misogyny in him. Um, so one of the things that struck me, you know, I had read this months and months and months. I've read this many times before. And I've heard this before um, growing up in the church in and out of different churches, you know, this has kind of come up and it's been a hard topic. And I think a lot of leaders try to find a way to excuse his words for the time that he was in or whatever. But, um, I started to read through the Bible front to back and I, I wanted to read more of the old Testament and really study things. Cause a lot of the old Testament was kind of, um, brushed off to me. And I remember being told that the new Testament was really more important because it talked about God's promises and showed sort of the more fruitfulness. But really, if you get into the Old Testament, it speaks to some things like this that need to be addressed. Um, so if you go to Deuteronomy 34.10, it says, and this is after Moses died, it says, no prophet has arisen again in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. Um, so this is Moses's death. And to give you a background on Moses, he was Hebrew 
He was born at a time where Hebrew sons were being murdered or taken away so that um, they would not rise up and have an army that could defeat the Egyptians who were their oppressors. And the Egyptians would use them for like slave labor and um, they were getting worried that they were having a lot of children and thriving even within their society. So they started to do things to ensure that they would remain oppressed. And Moses was born to a Hebrew woman who puts him in a reed basket and sends him off down this little river. And he's discovered by Pharaoh, who's the ruler, his daughter at the time. And she takes Moses home and raises him as an Egyptian he comes to understand his um, true heritage and he actually becomes a huge leader and he becomes very anointed in the power of um, the spirit of God and he leads his people, the Hebrews, out of Egypt and then they are renamed um, the Israelites. So Moses had a very deep connection with God and he was considered a prophet he would um, have, you know, visions and, and um, conversations with God and understanding that God would give him. And then he would relay it to people uh, what God wanted. And so he was, you know, a leader and he was also telling them what God wanted and relaying the information. There's a lot of stuff to go through in the Old Testament that is very important to study. Um, and what's important right now is that at the end of his life, the word of God says that no other man came as close to the Lord as Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. No other prophet has arisen again in Israel like him. Um, and so, you know, you can look at the timing of when that was written, but I think it is pretty sealed that from that point on, God did not interact as deeply as he did with Moses. So all other characters under Moses could have fallen a little bit short of God. Moses definitely fell short from God. Um, and then these other people like Paul would fall short from Moses. Um, and I just think that it's talking about the humanity of even these other prophets that come after him, that they're flawed. They're not as connected with God. They're not as convicted by not being connected with God and seeing him face to face is a big part of that conviction and knowing the sin in you. Um, and Paul didn't have that connection like Moses did, and Paul is certainly not God. So he says this, and what's interesting is there's nothing contradictory about what he says with the Word of God. Um, and what I want to really address in what he says is where he goes after Adam and Eve, and in First Timothy 2.13 he says, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And then in verse 14, he says, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and transgressed. And then in verse 15, he says, but she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with good sense. And so if we go back to Genesis, and I'm just going to get my notes here on Genesis. Um, first of all, you've got Adam and Eve um, in the Garden of Eden. This is you know, the creation theory of the Bible, and it's all written in Genesis. Um, Adam is created first, and he's created out of the dust and the dirt of the ground. God, like, supernaturally knits him together out of those elements is kind of what the picture shows, and a lot of this is prophesied. I think all of it is actually prophesied, so we don't know the concrete details, but this is given to someone who 
writes it down and it gets transcribed. So, I mean, there's a lot that's up to interpretation. I'm not really getting into the creation theory, but what I do want to point out is that um, God has Adam first and God speaks to Adam first and gives Adam the instruction about the tree before he creates Eve. And so this is in Genesis 2 verse 17 um, where it says, But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. There's a couple things to note. One, this is God talking to Adam, telling him that he can't eat from this tree. Number two, this is God, and the wording is very important because he says, for on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. And the wording is important because he's basically saying, on the day you eat from it, you're going to die. And he could have said, if you eat from this, eating from this would potentially cause you to die. But he, he's certain in his wording. And I think that's important. And it really caught me in the spirit that there was meaning behind that. God is all knowing. God knew what Adam was going to do. It didn't surprise God. It grieved God, but it didn't surprise God. Um, so he tells this directly to Adam first. We don't know if he directly tells this to Eve. We can assume that maybe he does, but Adam was the first to know that he shouldn't eat from this tree. So then um, when they eat from it and they have shame, they hide from God. In Genesis 3, God addresses Adam first about eating from the tree, and he addresses Eve secondly. But Adam's response to the Lord when he's addressed about why he disobeyed God and ate from the tree is to say, and this I quote, Genesis 3 verse 12, he says, The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate. And then in Eve's response in verse 13, after God asks her what she did, she says, The serpent deceived me and I ate. And now I could have bias reading this, but it feels like there's a lot more excuse weighted in Adam's response than there is Eve's. She is humbly admitting that she was deceived, that she fell to his tricks, um, and that she committed the act on her own will. And then in Adam's response, he actually says, the woman you gave to be with me, like this woman that you gave me. She's the problem. And then he says, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate. Not necessarily that far from what Eve is saying in some sense, because she's also kind of blaming it on the serpent. But the way that he points to how God had given him this woman and then she caused him to stumble, um, it almost puts the blame back on God in the way that I read it, I think it takes a little bit less ownership than the woman who is basically saying I was easily deceived by the serpent. And so, you know, just something to note there because Timothy is specifically, or sorry, Paul is specifically in, um, first Timothy, he's saying that Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and transgressed. Well, Adam is blaming it on the woman who gave it to him. But Adam was clearly told by God not to eat from it. Like very clearly in verse 17, God tells Adam himself directly. And we know for a fact that it was directly to Adam. We don't know for a fact that it was directly given that instruction to Eve. 
Um, so it's funny because Paul says that Adam was not deceived, but he either he was deceived or he intentionally ate the fruit himself. Um, so there's this really interesting kind of boy gang going on here where they're, um, collectively showing up for each other, but not taking as much accountability as the women. And I don't think that women are so fragile that we can't take responsibility for ourselves. There are plenty of wicked women in scripture who do some really horrible things. And I don't think that women in in real life right now, and I don't think that women are so fragile that they can't take responsibility for themselves when they have genuinely done something wrong. I I know that we can do that. Um, But what I'm saying here is that these men aren't, and they're kind of making it seem like they're perfect and the women shouldn't even be allowed to talk because they were the ones to fall first. But there's a lot of other stuff to unpack around that. So anyway, moving to some examples, because I think it's really important to share where God has been showing me in my heart how much I mean to him as a woman and how important I am to him as a woman. Um, in Genesis two nineteen and verse 22, um, I just completely heard the Lord speak to my heart when I read these words. Um, but it talks about how all these other creatures, including man, were formed out of the dirt and the dust of the earth. And then a woman he made out of man, he made out of flesh. So we were set apart from the beginning. And I, I felt God say to me, you are so special that I used the best of the best to create you. You were so powerful and purposeful in me that I couldn't use the dirt and the dust. I wanted to honor you in your creation and use flesh. You came out of more than that. Um, so that's something that I think I want women to hear as well. And hopefully you feel that spirit come on you of empowerment by knowing that you weren't second in line for creation. You weren't second here. You were created at a time where God had curated the right resources because you were so special to him. And you weren't worthy. You weren't, um, you know, the, the dirt and the dust was not enough for what he had planned for women and the strength that he had purposed in women. Um, the next um, part of scripture that really spoke to me and I think it's really important to unpack a little bit is in Genesis 38 verse 9 and 10. There is a man who has a brother and his brother dies and the brother's wife, her name is Tamar. And this man, um, his name is Onan. Onan's dad goes to him and says, you know, your brother has died. You should sleep with his wife and give her children that can be raised up in your brother's name. And so he agrees and he goes and sleeps with her. But it says in verse nine, and I'll just quote it. He released his sermon semen on the ground so that he would not produce offspring for his brother. And what's really important about what he's doing there is he didn't need to have sex with her if he had no intention of giving her children So he just used her and went and had the sex anyway. Um, And also, I think he was hiding it from her that he was using her. He had no integrity in the act. Um, 
in verse 10, it says, what he did was evil in the Lord's sight, so he put him to death. Um, God is so strongly against men who use women, who um, especially use them for sexual benefit that don't have um, full honesty and being upfront with that woman, what their intentions are. Um, so I think that in that reading that scripture, it really spoke to me about the prioritization of women's safety that the Lord has and that the men that he sees who are abusing women or using women that he disapproves to them to the point of death, he's willing to kill them for you. That's the, the, the vengeance that he has for his daughters. Um, so that spoke very, very, um, strongly to me as a woman reading through that scripture. Uh, in first Samuel 25, um, you have, uh, husband who is very wealthy his name is Nabal and he had many sheep and he had many goats and he had shepherds that would tend to them and they were out in the wilderness at one point with King David and King David's men who outnumbered this Nabal's um, servants and David and his men were in the wilderness running away from King Saul who wanted to kill David So they at that time needed many resources, as many as they could get. When they saw Nabal's men out in the wilderness, they didn't bother them. They didn't conquer them. They didn't steal anything from them. They respected them, even though it says in scripture that they surrounded them. Um, David and his men move on from the wilderness and then come to Nabal later on and explain to him that they need some food. This is a very wealthy man who has far more than he needs and... Um, he refuses to give them food and he also kind of mocks where David is coming from in his line. Um, so the men that came to Nabal to ask on David's behalf for the food return to David and tell him what the man said. And it actually says in scripture that he was screaming at them that he wouldn't help them. So David and his men suit up and they're ready to go and pay him a visit. And Nabal's men turn to his wife, Abigail, who is described in scripture as um, intelligent and beautiful. And she says to um, these men, so the men come to her and they're like, basically your husband sent them away and screamed at them. And she goes behind her husband's back. This is in scripture, 1 Samuel 25. She goes behind his back. She gathers his resources, all this food for them, everything they could you know, think of to take to them. She loads it up. She sends his men off and she follows them out to meet David because he's on his way with swords in hand, ready to kill this guy. So then, um, when she meets him, she gives him the food. She apologizes for her husband. Um, she goes and, you know, bows down to him and then he takes the food and he thanks her and he backs off and he goes his way and she goes back home and she doesn't even tell her husband until the next day because he was feasting and stuff that night. And I think it says he was drunk. Um, so the next day she tells her husband what um, he did and it says his heart turns to stone basically. And then the Lord kills him 10 days later. And after the Lord kills her husband, he, so he puts him to death, um, David actually sends men to her and he finds out that she's single and he sends men to her and he marries her. 
and she, you know, marries a king because <laughs> he wasn't king yet. I don't think at that point in scripture, but he becomes king. So she marries into royalty. God honors her from uh, deceiving and going behind the back of her evil husband and defying his evilness, which I think is really important to talk about. Another example in scripture of women who defied evil men is in Exodus one seventeen. The midwives of the Hebrew women were supposed to kill the Hebrew sons being born. They lied to Pharaoh at the time and told him that the Hebrew women were giving birth so fast that they were up and gone by the time they got there. And this saved all these babies that they could, but they took their lives in their own hands. And it says in scripture that God honored them for doing that. So he honored them for lying over these things because the bottom line was intent and their intent was to save people. So then um, another part of scripture that really spoke to me was in Judges uh, 13, 1 to 24. Um, This is where there's a woman um, and they don't name her, but she became Samson's um, mother. And an angel comes to her. She's barren. She hasn't had any children. An angel comes to her and says, you're going to have a child. These are the things that you can and can't do because the child will be a Nazarite. So they couldn't like have any alcohol, a couple of different rules around that. Um, and gives her these instructions about having this child. The woman doesn't know that this is an angel, just thinks this is a man of God. So a, like a prophet or someone would, who would hear or know the um, intentions of God and would come to you and tell you these things. So still very powerful, but doesn't realize it's an angel at that point. Um, and has a very like straightforward conversation with this angel, takes everything in, takes it to her husband. So her husband hears this from her and he wants to hear from this man of God, not knowing it's an angel at the time, um, to clarify what they were saying and to know all the instructions for himself. He wouldn't believe his wife that she you know, got all the information necessary. So he, um, asked her to get the man of God to come back. I'm pretty sure she like goes and speaks to the man of God or somehow the angel shows up again to talk to him. Um, and he's like wanting a a replay of everything and wants to clarify all the details around his wife's pregnancy. And the angel literally says to him, I've already spoken to your wife about this and I've told her everything that she needs to know. And it's so funny because it redirects him to trust his wife and to understand that she can take in this information for herself and make these decisions. (laughs) Um, So then uh, the husband starts to annoy the angel and you can hear it in the wording how annoyed this angel was with him because he asks the angel, which he thinks at the time is a man of God, um, what his name is. And the angel says, you wouldn't even be able to understand my name. There's no point in telling you. And then he offers him food and the angel says I I won't eat your food but you can offer it to God so then they burn this food that they had prepared for the angel on a rock and the angel goes up in the smoke and all of a sudden the husband realizes that he has seen an angel and he freaks out and he thinks that he's going to die and the wife calms him down and reasons with him that they just heard their whole future was going to play out with their baby (laughs) and so it's so funny because she's so reasonable but he wouldn't even take her word for what this angel said and the angel was like completely redirecting it back to her 
um, and then proves a point at the end of that, which I thought was really cool. Another part of scripture that I really, really, really love is in Judges um, 4, verse 4. And this is where God makes the first female judge. So at the time, Israel was having a difficult sort of cyclical process of sinning where um, they would fall away from God and they would worship other gods, try to find other means to solve their problems. And then they would come back around when he gave them a judge to direct their actions and he would um, deliver them from the oppressors that they fell into because they turned away from God and they turned to other gods so other nations would conquer them because they were so unfocused. And then these judges would rule up in from within them, give them sound advice and guidance and they would defeat their oppressors and then they would live prosperously for however many years the judge lived. So in Judges 4 verse 4, the first female judge is mentioned and her name is Deborah. And this is just what it says um, about Deborah was that she was a prophetess. She used to sit under this tree and people would come up with her, come up to her to help settle disputes and she would give them this wise advice. Um, but then it gets into um, this man named Barak and he was, um, I believe, their commander for their army and she summons him to deploy 10,000 men to fight their oppressors at the time who were ruled, the oppressors were part of um, King Jabin. And it, I think it's people from the land of Canaan, so I assume that they're Canaanites. Um, and that's in verse 7. So Judges 4 verse 7, she tells this Barak guy to come and she's like, go get these 10,000 men and go fight these Canaanites from King Jabin's army. And Sisera was the commander of their army. So Barak is the, the commander of the Israelites army. And she is telling him to basically go after Sisera. And it's funny because the way that she says this um, to Barak, she's like, hasn't the Lord already told you that he's going to hand them over to you in battle? Like, why haven't you already gone and done this? And he agrees with her. But Barak replies to her in verse 8, and it says, and I quote, Barak says to her, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. So he's basically chicken without this woman judge, this female judge, Deborah. And she tells Barak she'll go with him, but that a woman will be the one to defeat the commander of King Jabin's armies, who was Sisera. Um, and that woman is jail. And so she leads the commander of their oppressor's army into her tent and murders him. And um, from that point on, the Israelites eventually destroy King Jabin and they are free. They free themselves. And so it's just this interesting story of, first of all, this female judge who is in an authoritative position to give wise advice and who promotes the battle plans that are drawn by God to go after the oppressors of the Israelites. And then we read from Paul that he thinks that women should be kept silent. Um, so I don't agree with that. And I, I think it's interesting because there is nothing about what Paul says that doesn't keep the truth of the word of God. 
because it's all laid out how God feels about women. It's all laid out about how men respond to that and how men respond to women from the very beginning. Um, it's just not being necessarily pointed out correctly, I don't think, by the church, or at least not by the churches that and the people and the Christians and the Christian leaders and the teachers that I grew up around. Um, so these were things that really spiritually spoke out to me. Um, and I want to give an example that I really love about a man in the Bible who treats women with kindness. And interestingly enough, this is also a woman that he's treating well, who happens to be a foreigner. So I think that some racism falls into this and some other ring falls into this. And you can see his attitude in that is so gracious and so understanding and compassionate. And this is a man that God blesses and out of his line comes um, King David. And then later out of King David's line comes Jesus. So God chooses this line to bless it. And, um, you just see his character outlined and it's incredible. And I'm sure he's not perfect either, but, um, there's a lot in this that I just love the gentleness of his nature. It feels closer to Jesus. Um, so in Ruth two, the man's name is Boaz. He meets Ruth. Ruth, um, her husband died and she follows her mother-in-law back to her mother-in-law's native land and leaves her own home and her own family and the ability to start a life there with another husband. And, um, so Ruth goes looking for work to provide for the two of them when they get home. And she comes across Boaz's field and she collects the pieces of wheat and whatever um, behind his servants that just gets kind of left over and uses that to you know make bread or whatever brings it home and that's her work. Um, Boaz notices her and um, he comes up to her and confronts her the one day and so in Ruth 2 verse 8 he says don't go and gather grain in another field and don't leave this one but stay here close to my female servants. Verse 9, he says, See which field they are harvesting and follow them. Haven't I ordered the young men not to touch you? When you are thirsty, go and drink from the jar, dar, jars the young men have filled. And then in verse 10, it says that she fell face down, bowed to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor with you so that you notice me, although I am a foreigner? And his reply to her, he says, Everything you have done for your mother-in-law since your husband's death has been fully reported to me. How you left your father and your mother and your native land and how you came to a people you didn't previously know. In verse 12, he says, may the Lord reward you for what you have done and may you receive a full reward from the Lord God of Israel under, under whose wings you have come for refuge. So that's for Ruth um, 2 verse 11 to 12. And so in his response to her, he's acknowledging that she is coming from a different land and the hardship of that. He's acknowledging that she's an honorable woman. Um, he sees the strength in her. Um, it, prior to that, when he was first talking to her about working in his field, he offers her protection and safety from the other men. Um, it, you know, it's just he's very concerned about her being um, respected and not degraded and not below him, but given a fair, equitable chance to make something of herself because he sees that she has good integrity and a good character on her. 
Um, and that's something really that sticks out from a lot of these other men and how they speak about women. And so Boaz um, also in Ruth 2 verse 15 and 16 commands the male servants that he has um, and I'll just quote this. He says, let her even gather grain among the bundles and don't humiliate her. Verse 16, pull out some stalks from the bundles for her and leave them for her to gather. Don't rebuke her. So he's talking about making life a little bit more equitable for her, easier to get her um, earnings and the things that she's working for and to be kind to her, to be respectful of her um, to not make it about um, pity or anything like that, but to have empathy and compassion and empowerment for her. Um, so it's really incredible. Eventually they end up marrying and, um, you know, out of their line comes King David or out of Boaz's line comes King David, which is crazy because King David also has a really gentle spirit on him and a really honorable spirit on him uh, that you know you can see in First Samuel 20 to 27. Um, so I just think that, you know, his character is so contrasted to some of the other men that I want to talk about and their character. Uh, so men who have character that's not like Boaz, um, it's really different. It's really different what you see coming from them. In 1 Samuel 1, there's a woman named Hannah who is barren and she's humiliated for being barren and not having any children. Um, and she's struggling with her infertility and she's struggling with her um, sense of being a woman and, and um, her, con- her purpose and everything. Um, so she gets to a breaking point and she goes to the temple of the Lord to weep to God and to pray to God and to have a moment with God and just bear her soul to the Lord. And it says in um, the scripture that her lips were moving, but he, meaning Eli, who was the priest of that temple, couldn't hear her speak. So he didn't understand what was happening. He just saw this woman, you know, emotionally distraught over at the temple. And he says to her, his response to her is directly, and I'll quote it, how long are you going to be drunk? Get rid of your wine. This is 1 Samuel 1. I don't know what verse that was. I didn't write it down, but if you go read 1 Samuel 1, you should read all of it. Um, she replies to him in verse 15, no, my Lord, I am a woman with a broken heart. I haven't had any wine or beer. I've been um, pouring out my heart before the Lord. In verse 16, she says, don't think of me as a wicked woman. I've been praying from the depth of my anguish and resentment. So he has this prejudice towards her that she's acting crazy. He doesn't understand it. Um, she must be drunk. Get out of here and stop drinking wine. And it just like commands this, like what he thinks she needs to do to fix herself without even understanding the whole picture. And I think that this happens a lot with Christian leaders who don't have the proper training or education or just shouldn't be providing any form of therapy to people who come to them so broken. Um, and especially male leaders dealing with women who don't understand some of the struggles that they're going through and the hurt that they have, but the Lord does. And the Lord delivers on this woman tenfold. Um, so after she tells him that she's actually just pouring her heart out to the Lord, his response to her is in verse 17, he says, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant you 
the request you've made. Um, he doesn't say, I'm sorry. He doesn't say that was my fault to assume anything. He doesn't, you know, pray for her. He doesn't encourage her really. I mean, he's kind of telling her like, I hope God gives you what you need, but he's really not taking responsibility for the fact that he might've actually just caused her more pain and suffering to be judged that way. Um, so it gets interesting because in first Samuel two, um, the word of God starts to talk about Eli's sons, Hophni and Phineas. Um, it says that they were sleeping with female servants outside of the temple in verse 22. Um, and in verse 17, it says that they were taking sacrificial meat in contempt, which was very much against the duties of the priests. And so Eli was a priest of the temple. His sons were meant to be um, in a line to become priests of the temple, and they would maintain the temple and help with sacrifices. And it was a very honorable role. Um, you're working so closely to uh, God's temple and, you know, the Ark of the Covenant, and to even touch the Ark of the Covenant without... Um, proper authority would kill you it was it was lethal like God knew that the nature of himself was lethal because man fell so short from him Um, so there were a lot of rules and laws around it because of the sin that hadn't been broken and the curse that hadn't been um, sort of dealt with yet and these men were given an anointing and consecrated to you know manage the temple and they were basically falling out of their understanding of their purpose and their role, and they were evil. And eventually, God gets so sick of them, he curses Eli's family, and he raises up Samuel, who was Hannah's son that she gave him, and Samuel takes over the priesthood. And um, Samuel basically gets to be... um, in their position. So this woman who was back at this temple that Eli was judging, her, she has her son. God gives her her son. Eli and his sons being so horrible towards women and, and evil and spiteful of God and defiant of God and the role that he blessed them with. Um, God hands it over to that woman's son, Samuel, who becomes an incredible um, part of the priesthood and, and does amazing things um, and, and is a huge prophet. Um, so it's just really interesting how God came around tenfold on that um, for himself because he was being defied. But also, it, you know, it orchestrates it and it, it just the irony of that it's this woman that he treated like that at the temple and gives it over to her son is just incredible to me. Um, another area that I found interesting about the treatment of women is in Judges 16. Um, it's the story of Samson. He's the super, super strong guy with like supernatural strength um, that comes from his hair and his hair can't be cut. Um, and he, in Judges 13.5 um, or somewhere around there, it talks about how um, God, you know, he he purposes Samson to deliver Israel from the power of the Philistines. So the Philistines are now this nation that's oppressing Israel and becoming a problem for them. So he raises up Samson, who's really strong, supernaturally strong. And, you know, he can kill hundreds of men on his own, with his own strength. And he's going to go and defeat these Philistines. And Samson has some issues. Um, The way that he treats women is really... um, it's quite evident. He goes to a couple of Philistines and tells them a riddle and wants them to solve it. 
and they can't so they go to his wife and they tell her you have to let us know what the riddle means or we'll kill you so she finds out what it means from samson and she takes it back to these men and um they they answer it and he says you only got that because you talked to my wife and what he actually refers to as is a cow he said because you plowed with my cow um so it just you know yeah okay it could be all these other things but it really he's he's comparing her to an animal and um he goes and kills all these men for what they did and talking to his wife to solve his riddle and um it was uh interesting because he leaves after he kills them all and then he returns later to go be with his wife and the wife's um father says to him um, I was sure you hated her, so I gave her to one of the men who accompanied you. Isn't her younger sister more beautiful than she is? Why not take her instead? And that's Judges 15 verse 2, that this father says this to Samuel. So you can get a couple of things from this father, um, what he's saying to Samuel, because he knows him a bit better than us. So first of all, he was sure that Samuel hated his wife because she had given the Philistine men that he killed the answer to the riddle to save her life, which I don't know if he really understood that. And he called her a cow. Um, and he also says, isn't her younger sister more beautiful than she is? Why not take her instead? So he kind of seems to have this understanding that Samuel is a little superficial when it comes to women and that he might be persuaded by someone who's more beautiful than just the honor of his wife. Well, he isn't. He He gets mad that he um, can't have his wife at that point and he kills all these or he goes and lights all this grain on fire and starts a little bit of a war they go and kill his wife and her father and in retaliation to him burning their supplies and um, you know it just kind of perpetuates itself and there's all this conflict going on um, so later on after his wife is dead in Judges 16.1, it says that he w- he slept with a prostitute. And then in Judges 16.4 and 5, he ends up meeting a woman named Delilah, um, who he starts to stay with and he's sleeping with and in love with or whatever. And the Philistines are trying to kill him and Delilah is a Philistine. So they go and they ask her to find out how he loses his strength. So she keeps trying to figure out how he loses his strength. And, um, you know, she's trying to help them kill this guy. And he tells her the wrong answers a couple of times and they fail trying to kill him. And each time that he lies to her, she comes back and she kind of, you know, why would you do this to me? You can't love me if you're lying to me. I need to know what, you know, where your strength comes from. And this this goes on a couple of times. And then eventually... It says in Judges 16, um, 16 and verse 16 and 17, it says, Because she nagged him day after day and pleaded with him until she wore him out, For in verse 17, he told her the whole truth. So basically, she became annoying to him. So he just gave up to get her off his case. And, you know, not trying to get to the bottom of why she wanted to know, not you know, understanding her a bit better and her intentions a bit better. He just got annoyed with her. And this kind of feels a little bit like the misogyny of just like 
shut the women up, whatever they want to, you know, hear to get them quiet. And these, you know, comments that get made about us, and sometimes they're, they're lighthearted jokes, but I hear them a lot in the church, um, about women being naggy and annoying and needy and all this stuff. And, um, there's, there's no real leadership and partnership. And she has a lot to own up for this. Like, I'm not saying that she's this perfect, innocent person. She's trying to kill the guy. Like she clearly is corrupt. And again, like I said earlier, like women, are not so fragile they can't take responsibility for themselves when they're screwing up like this and doing things like this like in no way do I think that but um I'm just looking at how his misogyny betrays him because she he tells her the truth because he got so sick of her and because he has this sort of superficial view of women that we can kind of tell um and he gets taken down by the Philistines because she cuts his hair and he loses his strength and his eyes are gouged out and he's made a prisoner and an entertainer. Um, he does die by taking out these pillars in this temple and killing a whole bunch of Philistines, but he dies with them. So he kills them, but he dies with them. So his purpose is fulfilled, um, but it's not the way it needed to be. And so I think that he could have stepped into his purpose or he could be shoved through it. And he chose to be shoved through it because he liked his women and he wanted to be, you know, the way that he was viewing women. So, yeah, that's uh, pretty much all that I can share right now. Um on this topic and I just I think it's important for men and women to both lean into this scripturally and it's something that you know it needs a lot of prayer it needs a lot of spiritual discernment when you're going through scripture like this but this is just a lot of what the Lord I felt like direct conversation in my heart and my soul with the Lord um, saying you know this is not okay when you see this this is not okay when you see this this is okay and this is how I view you this is how I see you um, and I took a lot of comfort in that, so it is worth it for me to share. <laughs>